0: the storm is coming fast the day will soon be here when those who are caught unprepared will be the first to fall that much is clear hello and welcome to physical attraction the tayot Wowkie specials so on that where we'll be examining day, the end of the world the one apocalypse Can at a time stand your and survive while people crying Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction's Teotwauki Specials. In this episode we're dealing with the psychology of the end. So one chapter in Nick Bostrom and Milan Serkovic's book Global Catastrophic Risks deals with something called the millenarian response to global catastrophic risks. It's a fascinating area and I think it leads us into a bigger discussion about the psychology of the end of the world. So here we go. Broadly speaking, millennialism doesn't have anything to do with being a millennial, in terms of being born in the 90s and remembering Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's a name given to a set of different viewpoints about how the future is going to unfold. They all share in common a deeply ingrained sense of destiny. Things have to unfold in this particular way. It's almost inevitable that they will. And in a lot of ways, you can characterise it as the following. Millennialism is the expectation that the world as it is will be destroyed and replaced with a perfect world, that a redeemer will come to cast down the evil and raise up the righteous. And so there are lots of different versions of this type of thought, the idea that the world has to be destroyed before it can be remade and replaced by a perfect world, and the idea of a figure who will trigger this destruction of the world, or a redeemer who will cast down the evil and raise up the righteous. You can see that it's closely linked to the idea of a utopia, where the current society is destroyed more slowly and replaced by a perfect one, or a general apocalypse. Maybe nothing will survive, and the perfect world will be one completely without humans, kind of like a Gaia's revenge scenario, where the goddess of nature comes back and destroys us all for our hubris as a species, leading to us being destroyed and nature returning to take over the planet. Incidentally, if all of human civilization disappeared tomorrow, the last remnant of us would be the Voyager space probes out there in space that will last long after the sun vaporises the Earth and destroys everything on top of it. They will only be destroyed by micrometeorite bombardment, but it could take billions of years for that to happen. So this is the kind of apocalypse that's been predicted before. The grim industrial terrors of the human-made Earth being replaced by something cleaner, something greener. Here's John Betjeman, who was the Poet Laureate. Come, friendly bombs, and fall on slough. It isn't fit for humans now. There isn't grass to graze a cow. Swarm over death. Come, bombs, and blow to smithereens those air-conditioned bright canteens tin fruit, tin meat, tin milk, tin beans tin mines, tin breath. Mess up the mess they call a town. A house for ninety-seven down, and once a week a a half-a-crown for twenty years. And get that man with double chin, who'll always cheat and always win, Uh, who washes his repulsive skin in women's tears. And then later the poem goes on to say, Come friendly bombs, and fall on slough, it isn't fit for humans now, to get it ready for the plough. The cabbages are coming now, the earth exhales. So this then is a millennial belief for the destruction of slough and the return of the town to the rightful owners, the cabbages. My apologies to the people of Slough. I'm assured it's very nice. Even Norse mythology has an element of this, as James Hughes points out in his essay in Bostrom's book. Ragnarok involves men and gods being defeated in a final apocalyptic battle. But because that was a little bleak, they add in at the end the idea that a new earth will arise, where the survivors will live in harmony together. Of course, a lot of millennial beliefs are exemplified, for some of us, by aspects of Christian theology, although it actually only became mainstream in the 19th and 20th centuries, it's the kind of thing that drifts in and out of fashion in a major religion. So in this case you have ideas like the tribulation, perhaps many years of hardship and suffering before the rapture, when the righteous will be raised up and the evil punished. And then the world will be made anew, and humans will ascend to paradise. A lot of people say that these are the kind of predictions that show up in Revelations, although there are counter-arguments that would say that Revelations is actually just specifically relating to the time it was written in the sort of 60s AD with Nero as the Antichrist and things like this. And if you believe that, then it's an imminent prediction of Christ's return rather than a very, very long-term one. And of course, when we had our interview with Phil Torres on the show, he talked about how, in a lot of ways, the US's intransigent support for Israel, especially on the hard political right, is down to this eschatological belief uh, in Revelations that... Israel being occupied by a Jewish state is actually a necessity for the end of the world to arise. So clearly these millennial beliefs and these quite specific millennial beliefs have had quite a big impact on geopolitics, maybe an unappreciated one. This idea that the world has to be destroyed before it can be rebuilt. Now lest anyone accuse me of picking on the Christians, let's point out that Marxism is really the exact same thing. There's a sense of destiny, a sense of inevitability. Marxism is all about a deterministic view of history that builds to a crescendo. So the principal idea of Marxism that's laid out in the Communist Manifesto is this idea that inequality inevitably leads to the formation of political classes. You have your owner class and you have your industrial worker class, and the inequality between them will inevitably lead to the worker class rising up and overthrowing the industrial class. So in the same way as the rapture believers look for signs that the world is becoming unstable and prophecies are beginning to be fulfilled, so Marxists look for evidence that we're in the later stages of capitalism in accordance with their deterministic view of history. They believe that inevitably society will degrade and degenerate to a breaking point, just as some millennial Christians do as well. In Marxism this is where the exploitation of the working class by the rich is too great and they band together and overthrow their rulers in a proletarian revolution. This, then, is the tribulation, the struggle and the trials and the apocalypse that must precede the world being made perfect and the world being made new. Sometimes revolutionary figures like Lenin or Marx himself are heralded as messiahs who accelerate the onset of the millennium. You have the same strain of millennial belief that there's a single figure triggers this historical inevitability. And of course, there's the judgment when the righteous workers take what's rightfully theirs and the evil bourgeoisie and the system of capitalism more generally is destroyed. In systems like Mao's China or Stalin's Russia, where the revolution had decidedly already happened and the millennial event has already occurred, and yet there's no paradise on earth, you have to change the date of the tribulations a little bit. In the propaganda to explain to the people of Mao's China and Stalin's Russia why the socialist utopia hadn't arisen, they have to have this constant struggle against internal enemies, against dissidents, against traitors, against capitalist spies and things like this. And so what they're saying really is they're extending this millennial belief. They're saying that the tribulations are still occurring as the proletariat has to struggle towards attaining full communism, at which point the world will have been completely remade. This involves converting non-believers too. In fact, in neither system is there any real room for non-believers. In the uh, Marxist system, the non-believers are wiped out by Leninist oppression. And in the rapture system, all of the believers go up to heaven and the non-believers either repent or they're killed in the apocalypse. So either way, it's pretty bad for them. So maybe now you think that I'm being harsh to communists and fundamentalist Christians. Let's point out that similar belief systems exist in many of the world's major religions, and also the unspoken religion of a lot of atheists, which is the belief in technology. Just look at Ray Kurzweil and his Futurist Predictions, some of which we've talked about in our episodes on the singularity. A quick recap, just in case you missed those. These are basically the ideas that at some point, artificial intelligence outstrips human intelligence. And then society is radically altered in some way, as exponential development overtakes what we can currently imagine. In Ray Kurzweil's vision, the singularity is the establishment of paradise. Everyone is rendered immortal by biotechnology that can cure all of our ills. Our brains can be uploaded to the cloud, and we can experience deeper and more wonderful interactions and unions with each other. Inequality and suffering wash away under the wave of these new technologies there is disruption especially at first as the singularity arrives and people panic about what to do there is even a sort of judgment day in this i'm going to quote now about the ancient egyptians from the michael c carlos museum quote the egyptians viewed the heart as the seat of the intellect and emotion as such it played a central role in the rebirth of an individual in the afterlife the heart of the individual was weighed against the feather representing the goddess of truth, Ma'at, in a judgment process overseen by Osiris, the lord of the underworld. The judgment was a frequent subject for funerary art, especially on papyri and coffins. Central to the scene was a large balance, with the heart in one pan, and either a feather or a tiny figure of Ma'at in the other pan. In most scenes, a demon called Amit, the devourer, crouches below the balance anxiously awaiting the outcome. Should the heart of the deceased prove to be heavy with wrongdoing, it would be eaten by the demon, and the hope of an afterlife vanished. Oddly enough, the Egyptians never seem to have depicted the negative outcome of the weighing; only the joyful individual being received by Osiris, and presented with offerings. Perhaps in Kurzweil's Singularity, something similar goes on. As our technology improves, a final reckoning approaches. Our hearts, as humans, will be weighed against a feather. If they prove too heavy with wrongdoing, with misguided stupidity, with arrogance and hubris, with evil, then we will fail the test and we will destroy ourselves. But if we pass and emerge from the singularity and all of its threats and promises unscathed, then we will have heaven. There is a judgment day, just as there is a judgment day in the rapture, and just as there is a judgment day in the class warfare of Marxism. And of course, other people view the singularity as nothing less than the end of the world. From Terminator scenarios where AI replaces us out of maliciousness, or by some accident or failure in how we program it. It's the apocalyptic version of the millennium, where the world is radically destroyed. And like the other belief systems, there's no room for non-believers. In Kurzweil's futurist vision, all of society is going to be radically altered, whether you want it or not whether it benefits you or leaves you behind. And this exponential growth in technology can't be prevented by anyone, like the return of Christ, like the class struggle, whether it benefits you or leaves you behind. In some cases, it almost seems like Kurzweil is talking about a technological rapture. It almost seems like every apocalyptic threat, or a threat that might seem apocalyptic, it's responded to in this way. Nuclear weapons provided a similar dichotomy when they first arrived. Either this would prove the final straw, and we'd destroy ourselves, or the nuclear energy could be harnessed to build a better world. People talked at the dawn of the nuclear age about electricity that was too cheap to meter. Effectively free. Yeah, what exactly did happen to that? When we see the same response over and over again to different circumstances cropping up in different areas, whether it's science, religion, or politics, we need to accept something. That this response doesn't really depend on the circumstances. It's a part of human psychology. That's why we respond in this way. We want to believe in this way. We like this narrative. And so, when the idea of artificial intelligence outstripping human intelligence emerges, when the ideas of religion emerge, when the ideas of class struggle emerge, We stick them onto the millennial bandwagon. There's something about that that we just are addicted to in our society. I really think that the most important aspect of human psychology to understand is that we don't love facts. We don't love information. We don't work based on the physical world around us. We like to think that we're rational. But really, we're creatures of narrative. We love narrative. Physicists observe the world and we weave our observations into narrative theories, stories about little billiard balls whizzing around and hitting each other, or space and time that bend and curve and expand. Historians try to make sense of the hodgepodge of events and spin them into narratives that are consistent and pleasing to the eye, even if they're not always happy ones. Money is a story we tell ourselves. The existence of corporations is a story we tell ourselves. In our own personal lives, we construct narratives. We narrate our lives as we go, explaining where we are now, using the tropes we pick up from fiction, the ideas that we pick up from each other and from the world around us, to guide us as we construct the narratives. Things that don't fit into the stories we tell ourselves make us uncomfortable or get discarded. And if we can't do that, if we can't discard these things, then we have to change the story to fit them in. Maybe it's another trial on the way for the hero, another obstacle they have to overcome. But all good stories have that, right? The one thing we do, in all areas, the defining goal of humanity, is converting chaos into narratives, stimulus into narratives, into stories, stories that explain things, stories that allow us to believe that we understand things, stories that are useful, that make sense of the past, justify the present, and prepare us for the future. And as stories go, the millennial narrative is a brilliant and compelling one. It can lead you towards social change, as in the case of the communists or the Buddhist uprisings in China. It can justify your present-day suffering, if you believe that you're in the tribulation. It gives you hope that your life is important and has meaning. It gives you a sense that things are evolving in a specific direction, according to rules. Some rules, any rules, and not just randomly sprawling outwards in a chaotic way. It promises that the righteous will be saved and the wrongdoers will be punished. That there's a sense of cosmic justice, even if there's suffering along the way. And ultimately, a lot of the time, the millennial narrative promises paradise. The faithful will go to heaven. The oppressed will take over society. And humans will become technologically immortal. And it's a lot more exciting than a vaguer approach that's somewhat closer to the truth. Which is something along the lines of, there are many ways things can unfold, none of them are necessarily predetermined by unstoppable forces beyond our understanding. There are maybe probabilities that each will happen, and lots of outcomes that are less extreme than you might think can occur. But that's not satisfying, that's not how humans work. It's so much easier to think of things as either signalling the end of the world, or the dawn of a utopia, or possibly both at once. It's a narrative that we can get behind, a compelling one, a good story, and maybe a nice dream. And it can help us. Maybe an appropriate example, or at least a punny one, is the Y2K bug. If people hadn't been so worried about the millennial consequences of, um, the millennium, we might not have prepared for it as well as we did, and things could have been far worse. But it can harm us too. A lot of people in climate science, for example, are concerned about a pivot in public perceptions. One that goes straight from denial to fatalism. As in, instead of believing this isn't happening, it's a hoax, people go straight to believing there's nothing we can do to stop it, so we might as well not bother. Fatalism is an appropriate response to a millennial narrative. Is it an appropriate response to the problems that we face? It might be an easy one. The tendency to assess everything according to these quite extreme, albeit lurid, narratives it makes real assessments of risk very difficult to carry out. The issue is that human judgment is prone to all kinds of cognitive biases. For example, how about the simple fact that an event that could have threatened human extinction has never occurred in living memory, although people might argue that the Toba super-eruption 75,000 years ago which may have caused a population bottleneck with only a few thousand surviving individuals, comes close. This lack of apocalypses in our lived experience, while undoubtedly a good thing for us, makes it difficult for us to assess the risk. We're not used to calculating risks for things that have never happened. Then there's the hindsight bias. In nuclear weapons, we now know that the outcome of the Cold War was not a thermonuclear exchange between the Russians and the US. Pipe down historians who might argue that the Cold War isn't over yet. Now we can rationalise that after the fact, and put it into our narratives. We can say, oh, it was never likely to happen. We can say things like, ultimately the USSR was unstable, or that politicians are unwilling to risk their own destruction, or whatever. And you can convince yourself that it almost seems like, well, of course mutually assured destruction works, and nuclear war was unlikely. But it didn't seem like that at the time why are we so convinced that hindsight, after an event has happened, is so much better than foresight while the event was still going on? That might sound like an absurd conclusion, but think about it this way. What if it turns out that somehow the probability of a catastrophic nuclear war during the Cuban Missile Crisis was 50%? That's not too far away from estimates made by people involved at the time. Let's make it a coin toss for simplicity. We're happier assigning a probability to a coin toss. If it comes up heads, we're equally happy to believe that the outcome could just as easily have been tails. But when the stakes are high, and as narratively loaded as the apocalypse, it doesn't sit right to think that we're in the half of all universes that made it, even though that very well could be what had happened. Instead, in hindsight, we tend to judge things that have happened to be inevitable, Bostrom's book mentions this in a well-written essay by Yudkowsky, which refers to a study where people were told the same information about a historical war, and then the different results as to who actually won. And in almost all cases, the participants said, well, it's inevitable, obviously Team A was going to win because they had X and they had Y and they had Z, regardless of which team was the winning team that they'd been told about. And I imagine that, in the burned-out husks of New York, London, and Moscow, the survivors would probably be telling each other that it was inevitable that a nuclear war would occur sooner or later. I mean, in hindsight, it's obvious that with so many weapons and such foolish leaders, it would happen eventually. That's what we call hindsight bias. It shows that our ability to make probabilistic assessments about the world around us, to marshal reasonable responses to perceived risks has some fundamental flaws. The nightmare scenario is always more lurid, so people are more concerned and devote more mental energy to fears about being murdered or dying in an accident than they do about dying of heart disease, even though one is far more likely than the other. Equally, there's the availability bias. Humans tend to assess as more likely the concepts they can most easily think of. You can see how this could lead us both to overestimate, and underestimate potential threats, or even just misunderstand what the real threat is altogether. Nicholas Taylor talks about black swans, rare events that nevertheless do occur occasionally. It's this idea that, you know, the hypothesis that all swans are white are disproved by the single observation of a black swan. If we don't prepare for this kind of event, then we're setting ourselves up for failure, After that, then, the hindsight bias means that we fail to assess what the black swan really signified. Take, for example, the financial crisis. It broadly occurred because subprime mortgages were packaged and sold alongside other investments. This led to a liquidity crisis where banks wouldn't lend to each other and people realised that a lot of what they were buying could be debts that wouldn't be repaid. There was a crisis of confidence and a financial crash. The hindsight bias lesson is that subprime mortgages, where you offer mortgages to people who are less likely to be able to repay them, are a bad idea, inevitably leading to ruin. Unfortunately, this hasn't actually stopped people from doing things like subprime mortgages, but that's beside the point. But the real lesson of this isn't just the individual event from the black swan. The real lesson is that in such an intricately integrated and complex system as the financial services industry, problems that should be relatively small, a few people defaulting on their mortgages, can lead to a global economic downturn, with consequences that are even now unfolding. Similarly, look at the 9-11 attacks. They've led to a massive increase in airline security, and a much greater focus on Islamic extremist terrorism, and al-Qaeda in particular. But there were similar warnings beforehand that the intelligence agencies had to deal with, about hundreds, if not thousands, of threats to national security. In hindsight, with the laser-like focus on al-Qaeda that we have today, We can question why they weren't stopped, after all the intelligence agencies knew that Al-Qaeda were a threat, and we can massively overestimate the power of the group. The lesson, as Taleb eloquently argues, should be not that any individual event happens, but that black swans happen. Be prepared. Be generally prepared. When you apply this to the world as a whole, you get anthropic bias, All we know for sure is that we exist, this one, intelligent, citation-needed, species. Our planet has managed to survive for long enough for us to develop. And by the way, that wasn't necessarily already a foregone conclusion. We don't know whether this is because the rate of events that destroys planets is really low, or whether we're just the cosmic equivalent of flipping heads a 100 times in a row although those of you who listened to my interview with Rafael Alves Batista will know that he wrote a paper that argued that the rate of events that destroys planets is very low. So perhaps there's some other argument that means that human life evolving is quite unlikely. We don't know a priori whether we are one of billions of species out there or whether it's just us because things are so unlikely. Another fallacy that arises in our ability to assess risks is the conjunction fallacy. Here's my spin on the classic example. If I tell you that Richard writes poetry, grows his hair long, and smoked weed in college, rank the following statements from most to least likely. Richard has a blog on Tumblr. Richard is an investment banker. Richard plays in a band on weekends when he's not busy investment banking. People generally assess the last statement as more likely than the second. That is, They're more likely to believe in the statement where he plays in a band on weekends when he's not busy being an investment banker. But it contains an extra detail. By the laws of probability it must be at least as likely. After all, not all investment bankers play in bands on weekends. So when you add details, it has to be slightly less likely, right? But adding plausible details to a scenario can make us assess it as more likely than we would do otherwise. Another example relates more directly to catastrophizing. People were told that they were going on a trip to Thailand. They were asked how much they'd be willing to pay for different kinds of terrorism insurance. The first group was told that the insurance would cover the flight from US to Thailand. The second group were told both flights would be covered. And the third group, the whole trip. They're all separate groups of people. Some of them were told they were buying insurance for just the flights, and others the whole trip. The group that were told the detail about the specific flight offered to pay the most for that insurance. Then the group where the flights were mentioned in general. Then the whole trip group. Now obviously, if you think about it, it's very clear that if you buy insurance that covers the whole trip, that's more valuable than covering one flight or both flights. But actually, the least valuable insurance was the one that people were willing to pay the biggest price for. And that's because a specific scenario was mentioned people could imagine in their heads that flight coming down, and what they'd need to get around that. It caused people to judge the risk as more plausible, even though the insurance covered less than the whole trip. And as the essay points out, this means that our policy makers can be persuaded to invest our resources in less wise ways. Consider two alternative proposals. One suggests funding for an organisation that would distribute food in the case of some unspecified emergency and the second details a scheme that will counteract infrastructure warfare from cyber warfare from China. Which is more likely to get funded? Well, chances are the second one, because it addresses a specific threat. It captures the mind of the politician and the public more easily. It will get the funding. The politician can come out and say, we're ready for this specific threat that you may be worried about, and they'll feel like they've actually done something that is uh, very useful. But the reality is that the first scheme might be more useful because it's more vague. It can be used in more cases. If it turns out that a pandemic or a financial crash is going to disrupt society, then the specific defence against Chinese cyber war is useless. This has been pointed out before. Resources and governments have been diverted away from general purpose disaster response and towards addressing specific threats. And this is the kind of specificity bias that people have in the psychology when they're dealing with these existential risks that we have to get around. Again, it comes back to this idea that we like narratives more than we like facts. Let's put this in a relevant context. So in the last few episodes, I've described in lurid detail plenty of scenarios for a cataclysmic event that could severely disrupt societies we know it. And I bet, during each episode that you listen to, as the details for the potential scenarios rolled in, you were assessing that specific threat as more and more likely, If I asked you to assign probabilities, maybe you'd give a nanotech a 10% chance, nuclear war a 10% chance, pandemic or bioterror a 10% chance, Malthusian catastrophe a 5% chance, and so on, while listening to each episode. If you like, you can pause this episode and try it now. Okay, now add the probabilities up. When I did this, I got a solid 50% for the end of the world occurring at some point in the 21st century. But that sounds way too high for me, for some generic apocalypse. If you asked me to estimate any end-of-the-world scenario before the end of the century, I'd probably say 10-20% or so. So this idea that specific risk scenarios make us assess something more likely, well it's a really good insurance salesman's trick, and has been for decades, right? But it could confuse responses. Sometimes we get it wrong, e.g. particle accelerators as an example. So, you probably remember when the LHC was launched, the Large Hadron Collider in CERN in Switzerland, and everyone was concerned that it would bring about the end of the world. A very specific scenario was posed that it would produce mini black holes that could tear apart space and time. Now, if the scenario had said something like a collapse of the false vacuum, or the production of strangelets, or the density of the omega field would diverge, Scenarios for the end of the world. People might not have listened because they're less well known aspects of physics, especially the third one, which I just made up. Martin Rees talks about the risks from particle collider experiments in his book on the end of the world as we know it. He says, quote, I discussed these issues with a Dutch colleague, Piet Hut, who was also visiting Princeton and subsequently became a professor there. The academic style of this institute, where Freeman Dyson had long been a professor, encourages out of the box thinking and speculations hart and i realized that one way of checking whether an experiment is safe would be to see whether nature has already done it for us it turned out that collisions similar to those being planned by the particle physics experimenters were a common occurrence in the universe the entire cosmos is pervaded the entire cosmos is pervaded by particles known as cosmic rays that hurtle through space at almost the speed of light these particles routinely crash into other atomic nuclei in space with even greater violence than could be achieved in any currently feasible experiment. Hutt and I concluded that empty space cannot be so fragile that it can be ripped apart by anything physicists could do in their accelerator experiments. If it were, then the universe would not have lasted long enough for us to be here at all. However, if these accelerators became a hundred, a thousand times more powerful, something that uh, financial constraints still preclude but which may be affordable if clever new designs are developed, then these concerns would revive, unless, in the meantime, our understanding has advanced enough to allow us to make firmer and reassuring predictions from the theory alone. End quote. So you can see what Reese is saying. He's saying that there were collisions in cosmic rays in the upper atmosphere hundreds of times more powerful than the ones in the LHC. So if these collisions could cause the apocalypse, it probably would have already happened. Obviously, there's the still the subtle cognitive bias that maybe they can, and the probability is tiny. But even if that's true, we're still not significantly increasing it with our experiments, beyond the risk that already exists, so we should all be happy to let them run for science. In hindsight, this was a tiny risk, but the vivid, lurid, and narratively compelling scenario of a Promethean experiment that caused the end of the world, scientists overreaching and messing with nature, it probably made people overassess it as a risk. That combined with sensationalist journalism, right? Ditto the scientists at the first nuclear tests, who genuinely thought that the atmosphere might catch fire as a result. One of them, possibly joking, put the probability at one third. Was it lurid sensationalism that made them over the risk then? Or is it hindsight bias that makes us under it now? Ultimately, there are so many human biases that the whole thing can seem a little fruitless. But there are some decent lessons to take away from the whole sordid affair before we say that it's necessary to throw our arms up and hope that some computer arises that can correctly calculate risks. First up, we should remember, general responses and general disaster readiness can be better than specific salves for specific problems, and they can get around the fact that we're rubbish at assessing how likely things are to happen. Secondly, be wary about anyone making overly confident predictions about anything. Thirdly, remember that more lurid scenarios depend on more things to make them happen they're not more likely than the vaguer ones. Fourthly, what has happened, the state of the world today, is by no means inevitable. Just because risks have been avoided in the past doesn't mean they weren't a genuine threat. We may have just got lucky. And no one gives any credit to any preventative method that was successful, with the possible exception of condoms. But to finish... I want to return to this idea of narrative and our millennial response to potential catastrophe. We all love stories and narratives. They're often our way of coping with ideas that are too big, too confusing, or too unknown to comprehend. But these stories can be dangerous when they overstate the certainty of the outcome. Accepting that we don't know what will happen, necessarily, means embracing our power to change and prevent it. Yudkowsky talks about a sudden flip that happens in people's minds when existential risks are discussed. People who wouldn't dream of harming a child in their own lives can suddenly say, well, maybe the human race deserves to die. It's a form of scope neglect. Once things are moved into the general realm of tragedy, beyond stakes we can just about try to understand like an individual human life. As Yudkowsky puts it, human emotions take place within a single brain, We can empathise with one person or a small group of people far better than we can weigh a large tragedy. The human brain cannot release enough neurotransmitter to feel an emotion a thousand times as strong as the grief of one funeral. A prospective risk going from 10 million to 100 million deaths does not multiply by 10 our determination to stop it. It adds one more zero on paper for eyes to glaze over. We're not really thinking about what it would mean. We're not really allocating resources accordingly. We're not really being prudent in what we do. If, when faced with a threat, we flip to apocalyptic thinking, or millennial thinking, because these narratives are the ones that work for us, because they're the most satisfying ones, and because our cognitive biases mean that our assessments of risk that we attempt to do are so rubbish, we might miss our chance to rationally and reasonably address the problems, And the stakes of a truly existential threat, one that would wipe out intelligent life on Earth, extend so much further beyond the people we know and the world that exists today. It is an unimaginably complex potential future, with the potential for billions of intelligent lives spreading out across the universe. We must accept that try as we might, we cannot understand what's at stake, or what the odds are, but that, like it or not, we're playing the game. Better be careful, then. Thanks for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction, the teot Wilkie Specials. Remember, if you see an existential risk, report it to the relevant authorities. You can catch us on Twitter at PhysicsPod, or you can get, follow the show on www.physicspodcast.com, where you can leave comments, reviews, questions, anything you like. If you review us on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever podcast medium you use, that's really helpful. Tell your friends to listen to the show, that's also incredibly helpful. Until next time, take care of each other. You better make some preparations. There's no time for hesitations. Compile a list of tips. Our theme music is Get Ready for the Apocalypse by Astrometrics.